Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Foreign Correspondents, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you a rarity, another podcast episode recorded in person, this time here in Brasilia. I spoke to Bruce Douglas, who is an editor for the news service Bloomberg here in Brazil's capital. Bruce came over to my apartment, and we had some beers and shot the shit. That actually probably is not the preferred method if you want to keep things concise and easy to edit into an hour-long podcast. But that method did succeed in dredging up some great stories from Bruce over the course of our nearly three hours of talking, which I've distilled through the magic of editing into one hour. I love the twists and turns of his life story that included a seven-year stint working for BBC Radio and about four years of freelancing in Rio de Janeiro. Bruce's honesty is also striking. Whether it's the extra push he got to move to Brazil to work as a journalist on a permanent basis, I won't spoil what that reason is, or the travise of freelancing that eventually led him to seek out a full-time job at Bloomberg. He also walks us through the article he wrote on essentially a mafia in Rio de Janeiro, and it's an extremely compelling story in which hanging around in Brazil all these years pays off big. But it's better to hear it from Bruce himself. So here it is, my conversation with Bruce Douglas of Bloomberg in Brazil. First, I should just say thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I'm here with Bruce Douglas from Bloomberg, an editor here in Brasilia. Thanks for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about what kind of week you've had. Has it been busy? If you a little bit about what stories you've been working on. Normally, we also say where where you are, what time it is. But I guess we're, we're recording in person in my apartment in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil. So I'll get that part of the way. It seems like it's been quite a busy week today. I've been working on a story looking ahead to President Jair Bolsonaro's trip to the UN on Monday, if the doctors allow him to go after his surgery this week. So we've been sort of looking forward to uh, what kind of speech we can expect from him. And then there's been, yeah, sort of other smaller stories kind of bubbling along. But I had to work on Sunday as well, so my brain's slightly frazzled by this point in the week. Only one more day to go and then I could sleep in order. Sure. That's just a normal shift. It's not like something happened in there. Call Bruce, get him in here. No, no. Uh, yeah, unfortunately every three months or so you have to do one of the weekend shifts. Uh, okay. no, it was relatively quiet. Although again, I was on kind of bolster scenario health watch you know senior editors are always paranoid that we're going to miss a death and so it sort of <laughs> came to me to try and interpret this talmudic approach to the uh, hospital bulletin you know when they say he's recovering and now enjoying a creamy diet does that actually mean that he's dead and being propped up with some kind of elaborate gurney or something yeah um, he's being fed through the nose what are we supposed to make from that yeah that normal you know i had my boss saying well, it doesn't really doesn't sound good what do you think because obviously Brazil Brazil has a history of lying about its president's health. I mean, I suspect that's probably true in, in most <laughs> countries. But there's a famous example, I think, of Tancredo Neves, the first president or would-be president at the end of the, the military dictatorship, the first president to mark the kind of transition to democracy who died just before taking office and I think he died after his press spokesman had said, no, he's absolutely fine and <laughs> we'll be recovering soon. So I think that haunts our coverage of Brazilian president's health. Sure. Obviously, we work in a similar environment. It hasn't been a very crazy week. Fair bit of news, but nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. There have been no big surprises. I think that's maybe partly because 
the president has been under the weather, so he hasn't been tweeting with his usual enthusiasm. That's true. Um, so I think that that's possibly allowed us to get off a bit more lightly than other weeks. Okay, cool. And then the podcast is pretty all-encompassing, so we start way, way back at the beginning. Where were you born? What was it like growing up there? And, you know, tell us a little bit about your family, what your parents do, if you have brothers and sisters. I was born in Farnborough, which is basically a suburb of London, southeast London. And my parents, my father, he ran a furniture shop and my mother, she worked as a careers advisor, basically kind of running tests for people to decide what careers they should do, which uh, was kind of helpful when, <laughs> which it kind of forced me to try various things in order to, uh, to figure out what I wanted to do as a career. And I have two sisters. I have an older sister who's about 18 months older than me and a younger sister who's sort of five to six years younger than me so i'm the only male well, my cousins are female which meant that when i was growing up i always got given second helpings um, <laughs> not sure my therapist would agree but i think i had a pretty pretty happy childhood <laughs> i uh, grew up basically in villages around the town of Savernokes, which is about 20 miles southeast of london it's sort of the first green area that you get to if, if you take the train southeast of london then you're sort of passed through all this urban sprawl. And then since you pass through a, a few fields, then you end up in Sevenoaks. So it's, it's kind of commutersville, but I guess quite an upmarket commuterville. Most of the people who lived there, a lot of them were lawyers or financial services professionals who worked in the city. At least that would be kind of the profile of a lot of my friends' parents. So I guess it's quite a middle-class town. And yeah, I always lived in villages on the, on the outskirts of that. So I went to school near where I lived. We moved quite a few times for no particular reason you, your dad's furniture shop was still always in the same yeah it was always spot. in the same place but we <laughs> for whatever reason my parents seemed to quite like <laughs> quite like moving uh, we moved yeah i think five six times by the time i was 18 and there were some places that i liked better than others my favorite place was a place that was really kind of remote in the country it had a big garden it had a big pond there was a huge willow tree overlooking the pond and we were there during the great storm of 87 which for English listeners will mean something possibly. Uh, not for many other people, because obviously Great Storm is all relative by UK's very mild weather standards. Right, yeah. um, It wasn't exactly Hurricane Katrina, but it was a big storm. And it blew down loads and loads of the trees in the area where I lived in the southeast of England. And it blew down trees around our house, including this tree that was standing right by our house. And we actually had to evacuate our house because this tree was threatening to crush it. I can't remember where we stayed, but we stayed somewhere away from the house while they cut the tree down oh, so wow. that we could go back in it. But then there were lots of half-blown drowned trees which were perfect for, I was you know, seven at the time and so for climbing and scampering around. All these trees which had been a bit of a challenge were made a lot easier when they were leaning at a 45 degree angle. Sure. That reminds me, yeah, when I was growing up, we only moved once but I lived in a place called Oshkosh and we had I think the second or third tallest tree in town and there was a giant storm and the biggest tree in town fell on the person's house so our tree moved up on the ranking <laughs> so then we had we were that much closer to having the claim to fame of the tallest tree in town wow but, uh, <laughs> no that was serious bragging rights i was saying the name of my town is seven oaks and that's named because it had seven oaks there and it's uh, a town that dates from the 15th century but in this great storm six of the seven oaks 
blew down. So then it you know, became a sort of tedious joke that you'd sometimes meet other British people abroad. And you'd say you were from Seven Oaks. I mean, it's not a very big town, but a few people had heard of it. And they'd make the joke that it was actually only One Oaks. So yeah, sad times. Did you have to change schools every time you moved or no? No, no, because they were... I mean, they, <laughs> we moved a lot, but within quite a small area. So my dad's business, you know, he, he ran this furniture shop and the fortunes of the furniture shop were very much tied to the, the fortunes of the housing market. And because that goes up and down, isn't particularly stable. There'd be times we were flush and times that we were broke. So uh-huh. some of the moves were motivated either by success or by failure. So there's a mixture of downsizing <laughs> and, and upsizing. And others, I remember the, the house that I really liked in the country, we moved from that because my mother hated living in such a remote area. I mm. thought it was a little bit sketchy. It was a normal size house, but it was next to this massive former stately home, something fairly grand. And that completely emptied out. I can't remember what happened, but the owners went bust or something and huh. uh, they weren't able to sell it. They weren't able to rent it out. It was basically abandoned and it became a kind of location for acid house parties. So there'd be like these kind of raves. <laughs> yeah, at the it sounds kind of awesome. Like <laughs> an abandoned manor. But then they sent security guards in to stop people from throwing parties in there. And we were given a tour round after like one of the parties by the security guards. And, you know, there were beer cans everywhere and like, I don't know, this kind of ghostly, creepy vibe to the house, which as kids was incredibly awesome. But uh, I can see <laughs> my mother wasn't such a big fan of her atmosphere. The other side of the house so we had this sort of stately home on one side and then we had a kennels for hunting dogs so (laughs) you had the mix of occasional raves in this one house and then the howling and barking of all these hunting dogs next door and as kids we occasionally had pet rabbits and obviously the dogs next door could sniff out the rabbits and would occasionally burrow under and we'd come home from school to find our rabbits (laughs) ripped to shreds and my dad went to complain one time to the owner of these kennels but they didn't have any kind of working relationship and the guy threatened him with a shotgun so uh, which is you know obviously I'm talking to an American so you know you have some familiarity with guns but in the UK that's pretty rare yeah your your dad does he still run a furniture shop and no are your parents both retired or what? So, yeah, my parents... Well, my mum still does a bit of work every now and again, but my dad retired. He sold the shop, I guess, about probably about seven or eight years ago now. He's now very happy as a, as a retiree. Your mom was a career counsellor, not in, like, your school or anything, no? She did do some sessions in, oh, wow. uh, in our school, yeah. I don't know how it works in the US, but in the UK, like, you tend to do these psychometric tests. In the UK, it's called the Morrisby Test. A mixture of psychometric tests and also really kind of dumb tests. It's a mixture of tests where it's circle, square, diamond, (laughs) and what's the next shape in this sequence? But then also questions like, do you want a career where you work outdoors or something? Do you want a career where you, uh, you know, are only in an office? Or do you want a career where, I don't know, you wear a jetpack or something like that? So you fill out all these questions. Yeah, and then you get your answers back, and, you know, they're normally completely ridiculous. (laughs) Kick Uh, decorator. Yeah, well, I think I got (laughs) fireman, PE teacher. You know, I was never... I'm very sporty or good at putting out fires um <laughs> so because uh, I, I think like, like i said I, that i wanted to work outside but did you start taking interest in writing before you went off to college or no yeah i always wrote a bit there was a school newspaper called the argus but me and a, and a friend of mine thought that the argus was too establishment <laughs> so we set up a kind of rival newspaper which we were very proud that we produced by stealing photocopy credits <laughs> so there was some card you had to put into the 
photocopy machine in order to print off copies and somehow we found a way of gaming the system and producing limitless copies so we felt proud that we were producing this magazine for free and it changed names every time then that was <laughs> uh, part of this deal so it'd always be some kind of material and then a vegetable so <laughs> there was the glass onion the china carrot and i don't know stone tomato and things like that stone tomato i'm turning american <laughs> stone tomato but this was more arts zine i suppose with a mixture of kind of poetry and short stories and descriptions about how to make cool paper airplanes <laughs> not a lot of news not a lot of news no maybe there was the odd review again kind of art review stuff i guess at that stage to so talking i was like 16 17 here i certainly wasn't a news junkie the subject i enjoyed most was english I always enjoyed history, but I didn't pay that much attention to current affairs. In the UK, you kind of go off to school and you're supposed to already know what you want to do and you study that for three years and that's, uh, you know, all you study. How did it go down for you? I chose to do English. I seriously considered history, but in the end, I, I decided that my passion was more for English. Sometimes I wonder if that was the right decision, but anyway, it was a decision I made. In my final year at school, was you know, it was, it was pretty intense when you're preparing for these final exams and I applied to Cambridge Bridge, which was a stretch and so it just meant extra work but yeah, yeah anyway that worked out and so that's where I did my degree and I did English which yeah as I say like the course there it's sort of English from 1300 to the present day and <laughs> I remember the first term working on this middle English poetry and it's not like if you go to Oxford then you do old English which is almost completely <laughs> impenetrable this is kind of middle English so you have strange letters but it's just about decipherable uh, but I remember one of my first tutorial sessions we uh, talked about a poem called Piers Plowman which is this incredibly dull allegorical <laughs> poem about a farmer essentially I can't even remember what he does he has I think he has some mystic vision basically he dreams of a, a, a felde full of forca a field full of people um, <laughs> that's the first line and that's all I can remember but anyway I made the mistake of telling my tutor that I didn't think this poem was very good and uh, <laughs> he had the response which I which you know was I thought a good response and which has stayed with me which is that he asked me what he felt was the failing in myself that meant I didn't appreciate this poem <laughs> yeah which I, I, I just thought was quite a good response I mean you know fair play this, this poem has been around for 800 years and I've just swanned up at the age of 18 <laughs> and said it's a load of rubbish so there at what, what point does journalism happen for you is it more once you're done or i always wanted to be a writer but okay. i sort of dreamed of being a fiction writer and when i took time off between school and university i spent nine months working in a pizzeria to earn the money to go traveling during that time when i was working in the pizzeria i was also trying to work on a novel i was very very heavily influenced by david foster wallace he's so i was kind of obsessed with infinite jest when i was that age it was pretty conservative stuff it was that and um i used to read love the russians so i used to read loads of dostoevsky and it was a kind of very ungainly sort of mashup of david foster wallace and dostoevsky and yeah i mean i think i abandoned it after about 50 pages or so but anyway that flame you know has never quite been fully extinguished yeah so there were various to write at uh, Cambridge I submitted a kind of creative writing paper that had quite a good system whereby you could submit it and if it was really good then it could enhance your final mark if it was terrible then it wouldn't impact negatively it wouldn't bring <laughs> your grade down I mean I got an appalling grade for my uh, creative writing piece but yeah as I say luckily it didn't, didn't matter yeah and then 
at the end of my second year, basically under pressure from my mother to find a summer job. Uh, the first summer I worked in, a, in the pizzeria again just to earn some money. The second one, she was determined that I'd do something career-wise. And so I applied for a job as an intern at the Tico Times, which is Costa Rica's leading English language newspaper. I think, in fact, Central America's leading language newspaper. And so I spent three months there in San Jose. How had you even heard of this place? I think it was through a friend who was thinking of applying but then didn't apply again or possibly through my mother and her careers advice <laughs> contacts. But that was really great fun because I did a mix of news stories and culture stories. So I do one thing about government program to encourage women in the Pacific coast of Guanacaste to take smear tests. And then I do something on some kind of classical music concert in the jungle or surfing in the Caribbean. It was great fun. I mean, it was, uh, you know, they paid $200 a month. I lived in the cheapest room, which was a converted uh, sewer tank. So essentially, it wasn't actually, it wasn't actually, it was like a sort of, you know, annex to the house, which is this sort of metal box. Yeah, and it obviously got pretty hot in there. I mean, it didn't smell. With a family or with? No, or... like with other gringo wasters, basically, like me. The point was the rent was something like $50 a month or something. So, you know, that's a huge amount of fun. But I got to do some, some serious news as well as the kind of fun stuff. And did you speak Spanish already going to this? Yeah. So I studied Spanish at school. And when I finished working at the pizzeria, when I'd saved up the money, I went to Ecuador and I spent six months teaching at a university in a place called Riobamba in the middle of Ecuador. And I lived with a, an Ecuadorian family yeah, when I was 18. And so I spoke pretty good Spanish then. Yeah, I, was, I came home and did my final year of university. And then, and then what happens? I'd vaguely thought about going into academia. You know, I'd enjoyed doing my degree and I thought, oh, maybe I should do a master's in that. But then, I, yeah, I just started seriously considering journalism and there was an interesting course at City University in London. It was then called periodical journalism. So kind of magazine journalism, long-form journalism. Yeah, okay. And I signed up for that. I was accepted and d did that for a year back in London. And that was my first time kind of living on my own in London and, and yeah, working on this course, which I really enjoyed. And I made good friends, which I'm still, still friends to to this day. I feel like I didn't necessarily take full advantage of it because it, it felt less intense, the workload. From my undergraduate degree to doing this postgraduate degree, it felt kind of less intense. And lots of things were optional. So for example, you know, the shorthand class was 9am or something and I decided <laughs> that was that was too early for me so I didn't do that which again I regret now but yeah I mean that was again a, a good kind of taste for journalism you know probably going out pounding the pavement and expanding shoe leather and talking to ordinary people there was also the sort of dull production side of it as well so we learned how to use quark which um, I have oh, no idea if it still exists but kind of sort remember of, this yeah, the sort of uh, desktop publishing program on those very antiquated Macs. But that actually proved to be what got me my first job working for a company called Latin American Newsletters, which was, relatively speaking, a well-paid job at that time. In London? In London, yeah. You know, we're still talking kind of journalism standards. But, but I mean, in comparison to other friends who really, really suffered for quite a long time, this enabled me at least to rent a place, not on my own, obviously, but with friends and things, and, you know, occasionally go out for a beer, which is kind of all you want when you're 24, 25. Yeah, and I enjoyed it, although it didn't certainly didn't feel like proper journalism. It was sort of political and economic analysis. So I was reading all the wires coming in and reading newspapers from these countries. I mainly covered the Andean region, so Venezuela, Ecuador, a bit of Colombia. And yeah, you sort of read as much as you can and then sort of synthesize them into supposedly coherent analytical pieces. It was fun and I enjoyed it, but I, I did it for a couple of years and I managed to 
Wangala trip to Latin America to work oh, nice. out here, which was which was fun. So I spent three months um, out here. But I mean, after a while, I, I didn't feel it was proper journalism, and I was occasionally invited onto the BBC, basically to talk about Latin America. So there was a coup in Ecuador, or you know, I was obviously writing about the time of the Chavez revolution was well underway. So if I got invited to talk about Venezuela, then I'd go into the offices of the BBC. This is when the BBC World Service was in this beautiful building in the centre of London called Bush House, oh, and nice. it still had those kind of echoes of Cold War years where it was full of Russian defectors and <laughs> ex-Bulgarian guys with aristocrats with links to, you know, the secret services. And so I thought one time I'd ask for a job after doing my five minutes on whatever had happened in Ecuador. And I was directed towards a pool of freelancers. I did various tests and things and I was accepted into that pool of freelancers and then I started working for the BBC and eventually felt that I had enough of a solid footing there to quit the Latin American newsletter job and work full-time at the BBC. And, as a freelancer um, or...? As a freelancer, yeah, as a freelancer. I was a freelancer for three, three, four years, I think. There was always plenty of work, though obviously, I mean, it's pretty rubbish being a freelancer in terms of, you know, not being able to kind of set your agenda. Obviously, you can set your agenda, but... It takes time to establish yourself. And I always felt if someone called me and said, look, can you come in in an hour's time? I felt that I could only say no a certain number of times before I'd be blacklisted. Sure. So, and also I worked at the BBC World Service then. It's 24-hour broadcasting. So I have to do quite a few night shifts as well. And yeah, I mean, I I, I really hated <laughs> I really hated <laughs> night shifts. I didn't, didn't cope well with them at all. And then again, because you're a freelancer, so you might work through the night and then, then you might have to be back, if not the next morning morning you know the next afternoon or something for another shift so it was a good start but I, I remember it was pretty pretty daunting when you began because your first sort of shift somebody tells you okay fain up the Botswana foreign minister to find out what's going on initially you sort of thought well who am I to phone up the Botswana <laughs> foreign minister or whatever and it took a few shifts to realize that you're not phoning as Bruce Douglas but you're phoning as the BBC and the name the BBC obviously helped to open doors certainly in a way that working for Latin American newsletters had never uh, opened <laughs> So, but um, the, what format you were writing? Or was sorry, this so this is radio. This is radio. Yeah, okay, this is BBC yeah. World Service Radio. So we're working on a production desk of I don't know, maybe eight people at most, I guess, plus the presenter. And you'd spend an hour reading in in the morning, reading reading newspapers, looking at websites. Then you'd have an editorial meeting and decide on a rough format. You know, the stories you're going to tell and how you're going to tell them. And then you'd basically feverishly bash the phones until you could put together a program. And it's it's intense because obviously you can't with radio you know there's no flexibility when the program is live it's live if the call yeah. goes down that's the end of the segment what are you going to do to fill the silence would it, you go on air rarely I, as I say I was mainly a producer sometimes of course you, you do um, particularly at the world service where you have lots of foreign language clips I might be the voice of <laughs> Saddam Hussein or something but that's great but yeah I didn't go on air as myself very often uh, no I don't think I don't think I went on at all at that stage maybe there'd be something like I remember I was there during the financial crisis and when Lehman Brothers went down and I was sent out to get some clips so it'd just be a bit of kind of vox poppery with my voice attached but yeah for the most part I was just kind of behind the scenes and I did that for a few years and I was getting pretty frustrated with it when I started working for Radio 
504, which is the domestic service in the UK. And I felt that was a kind of a lot more rigorous, basically. I felt that there was, it was clearly there was more money, more investment, more resources at Radio 4. And I just felt the people who worked in it were a bit more serious. And so I kind of moved to Radio 4. I had been thinking about quitting journalism, but when I moved to Radio 4, I started to really enjoy that. And I felt that the programmes were serious and that there was enough time to do a decent job rather than I felt with the World Service, you're often desperately scrambling to um, just put a programme together. You know, if you managed to get someone who was semi-coherent, spoke half-decent English <laughs> and their phone line wasn't too terrible, then you'd be satisfied with that. Whereas I felt the bar was set quite a bit higher at Radio 4 and I really enjoyed it. Oh, but also the point I should make was that at the World Service, there was never a chance of me getting a staff contract. When I moved to Radio 4, after not so long, I got a staff mm-hmm. contract, which made my life a lot easier. And, you know, it just means you can start to vaguely, not that I've ever managed to do this, but in theory, plan your life financially <laughs> and know, you know, how much money you're getting each month and therefore what you can afford in terms of rent or food or going out. So how many years were you at the BBC and where did you move from there? So in total, I was there seven years. So three years at the World Service and then basically four years at, at Radio 4. By the end of my time there, I was a senior broadcast journalist, which meant I was output editing some of the programs, which is kind of being in charge of a team of 10 people and deciding what the program of that day is going to be. Yeah, that was... That's pretty cool. It was cool, uh, incredibly stressful, but fun. But fun. I mean, I had supervised people, you know, who would lean over the buttons and tell me what I was doing wrong. But in theory, it was your show. Yeah, I would have stayed for longer. I'd always had a hunkering, though, to work as a foreign correspondent in Latin America. And, like, this Latin American newsletter job didn't quite scratch that itch, you know. Sure. I didn't feel like it was the real thing. Yeah, after about seven years at the BBC and after I'd, I was staff, relatively rare to get staff contracts, but after I was kind of embedded there, I asked for three months unpaid leave to go and work in Brazil in order to try my hand as a reporter and to, in theory sort of fulfill this dream of being a correspondent. So I came here to Brazil in December 2012 and I was determined to learn Portuguese. I spoke good Spanish at that point but I didn't speak any Portuguese and basically I, I spent those kind of three, in the end I extended it to four months doing bits and pieces. I mean 2012 was before the World Cup, before the Olympics. There were kind of enough stories to sort of keep me fed and it was at that time that I started to write for some of the newspapers back in the UK mm-hmm. I'd done a tour of newspaper offices before I'd left so they knew that I was going to be out there and I also ended up working again for Latin American newsletters <laughs> I mean but that was a blessing I mean it allowed me to keep kind of body and soul together because also because in theory the BBC couldn't know that I was working I mean there's a sort of slightly bizarre rule whereby in theory you weren't allowed to be working but yet they accepted some of my work like the particular programs <laughs> team that I worked for accepted my work, although in theory I wasn't supposed to work. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I lived a slightly ridiculous life in Rio. I stayed in an Airbnb not far from Ipanema Beach and lived with this woman called Fernanda, who was a dentist. And anyway, she was very nice, if incredibly neurotic. She spoke okay English, but I remember that she just put the fear of God in me as soon as I arrived. And that She told me that I shouldn't go out with either my watch or my wallet, which soon proved to be impractical <laughs> because they didn't you know, get stolen. And she told me this horrific story. She was divorced and she'd been out on a date not long before with some guy and basically their car had been held up at gunpoint and the thieves had taken them out of the car, relieved them of their money and their jewellery and whatever and then made them stand against a wall or something and then they made the guy, her date, they made him pull down his trousers and then they shot him in the ass and then drove off laughing 
basically. So this is one of the first stories that I had. <laughs> slightly absurd and also slightly horrific. Yeah. So I was kind of very cautious in my first few weeks and then you steadily figure out what's what. Now Rio is obviously is a very dangerous city. It wasn't quite so bad back then. This is 2012 when there was a lot of money flowing in, all kinds of reasons. The oil business there was booming but also there was a lot of investment to try and spruce up the city before the World Cup and then before the Olympics. So it was safer then but, it, but even so, I mean, you know, middle class Brazilians who lived there for a long time and have been traumatised by the violence and perhaps have unrealistic expectation of what gringos expect. Obviously <laughs> part of the attraction for a gringo is a grimy slightly dangerous edge and I don't know, that perhaps sounds like a stupid thing to say, but I think part of the attraction is that Rio isn't completely sanitised um, but it was during this period where I met Amanda, mm. who's now my common-law wife, where we have a, an union estavio, if not an actual marriage certificate. We met via a dating app, which I'm not allowed to say. Our story is that we actually met in a bar. We'd only spent six weeks or so together. When I had to go back to the UK, I asked for an extension, but my boss said, no, you've got to come back if you still want a job. So I went back, and anyway, then a couple of weeks later, she got in touch with me to tell me that she was pregnant. So then I had to figure out what to do about that. It was a fairly kind of intense decision-making process. There was my paranoid dentist friend, Fernanda, was convinced that it was some kind of golpe, some kind of uh, <laughs> fast run, basically. There was a typical Brazilian woman's move to... Lock down the gringo. Yeah, exactly, not on the gringo. And it may well have been, but here we are now, seven years <laughs> later, still together with one more son to the mix. So after some intense, heartfelt discussions, I decided to quit my job at the BBC and come back to Brazil. And that was motivated not just by a sense of paternal responsibility, but also because it was the fulfilment of this long-held dream to be a foreign correspondent in Brazil. We discussed the idea of her coming to England, but it seemed to me that perhaps the best way forward in this slightly crazy situation was for me to go to Brazil, and I was confident there'd be plenty of work in the run-up to the World Cup and then the Olympics. In August 2013, I moved back to Rio, and we moved in together and tried to get to know each other before the baby was born. <laughs> yeah, wow. So, I mean, how many years did you put in freelancing, juggling new parenthood with freelancing? Sounds like quite a feat. Yeah, it was intense. When I arrived in Brazil, when I arrived back in Brazil, you know, my Portuguese was still pretty rubbish. I had, you know, some prospects of work, once again, with Latin American newsletters, and also the BBC had said they'd be keen to take some stuff. I'd also lined up a, a lucrative gig helping to produce for the BBC during the World Cup. I moved back in August 2013, and then June or July 2014 was the start of the World Cup. So I knew that I had a, at least a big payday coming at that point if I could last until then. You know, luckily I had, but it was only four months to build something up before my first son was born. It was just a question of making the most of the context I'd had in London. Again, I toured the newspaper offices because the BBC is a huge beast. So I'd spoken to their, to their web team, to their news team, to their Latin America team, to their business team, uh -huh. to their sport team, to all kinds of people so that I had like an in there and once you've got a few stories under your belt then it was easier to pitch to others to other organizations outside the BBC it was quite key getting written stories published so that you could show clippings because it's True. quite hard to send radio pieces and just because simply there just aren't that many radio outlets and also as a freelancer radio is a pain in the ass because <laughs> it's just very time consuming True. for what you know you get paid yeah I mean I also had I also relied on my contacts from my 
my time doing journalism school and that helped by that time I'd been what it was almost 10 years out of journalism school so I had some friends who were in commissioning editors positions you know I had had some people to pitch to which I think again made things a little bit easier there was loads going on then Brazil was in ferment basically you know much to my chagrin I missed the June 2013 demonstrations you know a huge Uh wave of unrest across the country triggered initially just by an increase in bus fares in Sao Paulo but also other cities you know arguably as we sit here now Brazil has never recovered from the (laughs) convulsions of that period you know it started out as quite left-wing protests became kind of hijacked by uh, right-wing movements and anyway Amanda was actually Amanda was shot by a rubber bullet during that period when she was pregnant and she was coming home from work late one night and was hit by a rubber bullet during a protest but I was back in London working for the BBC at that point but as I say those protests never really died down and there was huge unrest related to the World Cup so you had the mixture of this huge kind of excitement from the sporting world I did some sports reporting, even though I really don't know very much about football, <laughs> but also the social and political and cultural side of that were really in the minds of editors back in the UK. I think it also helped that London had just had the 2012 Olympics. Uh-huh. So in some ways, I guess people were interested in how these mega sporting events impact a city. And in Rio, that was fascinating. And there was always something going on. And there have been some positive transformations in the city, but also the kind of international spotlight was drawing attention to gross inequality, unbelievable Uh corruption and kind of amazing, I guess, cultural resistance, which is very attractive to editors sitting in London. So there was plenty to work with. And though obviously perhaps that died down a little after the World Cup, but then you had the 2014 elections and that was a big story. And then as soon as the elections were over, the first moves to try and get rid of Dilma began and you had more protests, more upheaval, as well as the Olympics on the horizon, which again was of huge interest in the UK and I guess, you know, around the world, I did lots of stuff for US and Australian media outlets. So I'd always felt there was a strong appetite for Brazil stories. To be honest, I couldn't have imagined a a better place to be as a reporter starting out as a freelancer because you had an incredibly exciting story with global interest. At the same time, Brazil is a very open society where you can speak to all kinds of people without, you know, strange men in long overcoats kind of watching you you have people officials who often speak to you more than they should brazilians natural outspokenness i think sometimes probably does them more harm than good when talking to the media but it makes for a sort of fantastic copy and it's also a very pleasant place to live i have my issues with brazil and i've always had it's a very challenging and frustrating place at times but there is also a certain undeniable charm about the place and a certain kind of ease of interactions with people that makes it a really wonderful place to be a journalist and I think that being a gringo here you're treated with a degree of respect and warmth which obviously you don't deserve but which makes the work of being a journalist here yeah really 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 good fun and to be honest relatively easy I think you compare I imagine that working somewhere like Russia or China is a lot harder than working in Brazil Brazil even with a relatively small amount of Portuguese you can do good work definitely I mean in China I stints as a freelancer is a different vibe to be sure I mean we didn't talk to government officials although I found like becoming a 
full-time reporter, you also don't really talk to that many officials. They just don't want to talk to you there. But do ordinary people speak to you openly, or is it hard to... Yeah, it depends on the topic. I mean, in person-to-person relations, like, nobody has a problem expressing opinion. People are only worried about getting in bigger trouble. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I remember I took a year off to study Chinese, and I did a journalism independent... You could do an independent study and whatever. I was doing a language program, and my teacher was like, go out and ask a hundred people what they think about the one child policy or two child policy. Mm. Cause it was changing at that time where like, I think it was starting to loosen where if two people were only children and they, they got together, then they could have two children. Uh, but if you came from a multi-child family, then you couldn't. And, you know, I stood outside in the bitter cold outside of the subway. And I mean, I would say a lot of people snub you, but eh, half the people talk to you. And I, you know, I didn't get a hundred, but I got like 40. Right. But so, yeah, no, it's not that difficult. I find, in China, maybe even more than Brazil, people are very, you know, impressed by gringos who speak right. Chinese, especially. So right. they're like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Yeah, welcome the foreigner in. So, um, will they be critical of the government? I mean, will they say things like, one child policy has been a disaster? For I mean, that's the issue. If you want to ask somebody their name, it becomes very different. Right. It, like, they're fine to criticize the government anonymously, but it's not like, I mean, obviously bad things can happen to you speaking out, and it's not the kind of civic thing in the U.S. where like people are like, yeah, put my name on that. Yeah, I stand yeah. by this. Obviously, there's tons of stuff we could talk about. Maybe, yeah, just to talk about how you got from being a freelancer to being at your job now. Uh, essentially, this was 2016. And, well, I, I was worried that after the Olympics, that work as a freelancer was going to kind of drop off a cliff. I'd felt I'd had a good three, three and a half years in Rio with plenty of international interest. And my fear was that that really wasn't going to be sustained after the Olympics. And there were various other things also at stake. I mean, Amanda was keen to leave Rio. I was pretty keen to leave Rio. The place had you know, started to lose its appeal for me. And um, This was already before the Olympics happened? or Yeah, this was already before the Olympics. I mean, the other thing was, I mean, we were living in a lovely house, which is way too expensive. I, you can see there's a certain kind of <laughs> <laughs> pattern in my uh, rental arrangements. But basically, we moved there when I was still earning in pounds, and the pound was incredibly short. And this is, you know, ahead of the impeachment of Dilma when the economy was really struggling. And there was six AIs to the pound. I could live like a king. Yeah, wow. Well for a brief period of time and we moved into this house and then gradually the economy recovered and things started to become tighter and tighter and I was kind of racking up debts in my English bank account and then I got a bit sick as well I had long-standing digestive problems and then I, I dislocated my shoulder I've dislocated it kind of several times but this one was, was quite bad and I didn't really have proper medical insurance and there's just a combination of factors it was a very kind of stressful time just in the run-up to the Olympics and I was like oh, I've got to get a job I've got to get a proper job and I read a bit of Bloomberg's work while I've been in Brazil there was a couple of long form pieces which they'd done which I thought were really good and there was some regular shorter coverage of politics in Brasilia which I'd always found you know useful and ahead of the curve and so I think I found on LinkedIn this advert to be a reporter a congressional reporter in Brasilia so actually I applied for the job as a congressional reporter and it was during my interview process they asked me if I'd like to consider running for an editor position instead which I was a bit hesitant about at first I felt that I enjoyed 
to reporting more than sitting in an office. But I was keen at that point to get a job. I had you know, a family to support a growing boy. Although I'd been earning well in the previous years as a freelancer, you had the kind of double uncertainty of never knowing how much you were going to earn and then how much that was going to be worth because currency was so volatile. So I was keen to have a fixed income and create a little bit of stability for the family. I guess I didn't know a huge amount about Bloomberg at that stage. I had a couple of friends who worked for it. I'd actually looked into working for Bloomberg probably a kind of decade earlier by, this was back in London, but sort of put off by the very heavy emphasis on the world of finance. But I got the impression, which has been borne out by my experience, that Bloomberg was obviously its core competency remains the world of finance and investment and big money, but it also is expanding in a more generalised direction to become a new service that covers a broader range of things than that. And it was enjoyed writing about the soap opera of Brazilian politics. Uh-huh. And so I applied for this job. The application and the hiring process was very, very protracted, very <laughs> tedious. I mean, I can't remember how many. I think I had like seven interviews and wow. I think it was over four months. And it meant moving to Brasilia, which, I mean, I, I knew Brasilia a little bit. I had a couple of friends who lived here and I'd promised Amanda that we would leave Rio. <laughs> I hadn't told her where we'd go, but I promised that I'd find a way to get out of Rio. And so we both visited Brazil, actually. In that dying days of my freelance, I'd interviewed then-President Dilma Rousseff with a couple of other foreign correspondents. I was working for The Guardian then as a freelancer. And so I'd interviewed her shortly before her impeachment. And I'd invited Amanda and Fred to come up and join me in Brasilia after the interview, just for a family holiday, basically. And so we knew the city, and she liked the city. It's a very green and pleasant city. You know, yeah. It's a nice place to raise your family. It's much safer than Rio. You know, It lacks the bars it lacks the excitement it lacks the beach obviously you know we knew and we liked Brasilia so I got the job and we moved here and it was quite a transition to move from the sort of freelance lifestyle in Rio where I spent almost four years I think I ever wore a pair of socks very rarely wore a pair of trousers to suddenly move into this corporate uh-huh. world with okay it's not a tie and suit type affair but smart car keys and a collared shirt and I guess being plugged into proper kind of organisation I mean having worked at the BBC I worked for big organisations before I understood some of the dynamics and politics um, Uh that always at play in a a big business but you know it took a bit of getting used to I was lucky to a certain extent in that I started literally just in the beginning of September 2016 which was just after the confirmation of the impeachment of Dilma so that meant that the news cycle wasn't quite as intense as it had been during the impeachment you know Mm -hmm. Michel Temer had already been effectively in power for kind of five months I mean that didn't last long and you know seeing obviously all the kind of corruption allegations and cabinet ministers falling and that kind of thing but the first month or two I don't remember being that intense and that brings us to where you are today and and what is your job title technically so I'm Latin America editor for economics and government sounds very broad sounds very broad I mean I, I cover stories from across the region but I have to say Brazil is a demanding mistress so i'd say i don't know 85 percent of my time is probably spent on brazil the way it shakes down i tend to work more with the reporters who focus on politics so i tend to work more with the reporters who are either in congress or at presidency i tend to do more politics than economics although it's obviously impossible to completely separate the two and i do a lot of economic stuff as well but the way it's kind of shaken down over the years is politics 
big stories from Brazil tend to pass through my hands. Obviously, there are bigger stories in the world than Brazil. But within Brazil, I mean, that move from Rio to Brasilia, the story of Brazil, the most interesting things that are happening in Brazil from a news perspective, moved from Rio to Brasilia at about the time I did, arguably even slightly before. I think the main kind of drama in the country has been here for the last three years. So, you know, it's been a a good place to be. So the next segment of the show, we usually talk about a story or two that you've done that you're proud of walking us through from the idea stage to how you reported out to writing and publishing reaction, yada, yada. I don't know if you have one in mind, but... The story that I'm proudest of is probably a story I did this year. It was a story on militias in Rio, and it's a story which probably isn't core Bloomberg, but I managed to persuade an editor to look into it and it was published in the Business Week magazine which mm-hmm. is the kind of, that's where you hope your stories will end up in the Bloomberg universe, that means it's reached uh, as wide an audience as, it, as it's going to and this, I guess the reason that I'm proud of it is because it's sort of the fruit of many years of being in Brazil essentially I went to a town called Itaboraí about four years ago for the first time, 2015 and the reason I went to this town when I still live in Rio, this is a town on the outskirts of Rio. The reason I went there is because it had become the sort of symbol of Petrobras's downfall and the Lava Jato, the car wash corruption scheme. Basically, this was a town where President Lula had laid the um, foundation stone of a massive petrochemical complex, which was to be the largest petrochemical project in the Americas, because Brazil produces a lot of oil, but doesn't refine a lot of it, which means that it loses a lot of money. And this petrochemical plant was supposed to be one way of addressing that issue. And so huge amounts of money were poured into this town, and it became a real boom town where very smart, slick apartment blocks sprung up. And this was in a town that previously had very little going for it. It had once been famed for its oranges, but after that, it had become a sort of potter's yard. It was ceramics were Mm. were reasonably well-known in the region. But then when they decided to build Compergé, this petrochemical complex, all kinds of investors piled in, building fancy hotels, fancy apartment blocks, you know, shopping malls with helipads on the roofs. And then basically the oil prices started to fall. Petrobras got caught up in this massive corruption scandal and investment in Compeche was put on hold. The idea was that at its peak, this petrochemical complex would provide jobs for 100,000 people. At its peak, I think it employed something like 29,000. It eventually shut down completely for about 18 months and Itabori became a kind of ghost town. It just became a place full of boarded up shops and half-finished tower blocks and some sparkling new buildings which were completely empty. And I did a story on this in 2015. It wasn't... How did you hear about it? I think it was kind of well covered in the local media. I think that the reason for doing it was because there were some strong stories emerging of the workers from around Brazil who'd come to this place thinking it would be the new El Dorado, who ended up sleeping in these workers' hostels, these Mm -hmm. fairly grim dormitory motels, desperately hoping that the plant would open up again. Because there was also a complete lack of information, you know, they were just barred from the factory gates or, you know, the van that was supposed to pick them up didn't pick them up and they got no information and they didn't know whether they still had a job or not. And often these 
guys had spent what little money they had in getting there in the first place and so it was really chaotic and unclear and these guys were the real symbol of Brazil's plunge into its deepest recession on record. I did a couple of stories on it for various different outlets. I did one big piece for Foreign Policy magazine and I did a piece for the BBC and this piece for the BBC I actually worked as a producer on a film and I spent a week in Itaboraí. Basically it was a documentary film about 15 minutes in length or so but I had just quite a high budget. I mean they flew out a director and a very talented cameraman from London. I helped produce the piece so find the sort of characters that we were going to tell the story through. One of the characters was this guy called Sergio, who was a welder, who had worked at the plant, but then had been laid off. He was a father of two young girls, and he was just struggling. He was also an evangelical pastor. He was an interesting character who was very forthright, and he communicated well, I guess, the tragedy of this economic collapse. Anyway, I spent a week filming there, and I spent quite a lot of time with this guy, Sergio. And as you do, we became friends on Facebook. And I guess maybe exchange a few messages kind of over the years. But this was back in 2015. And then at the beginning of this year, he got in touch with me via Facebook. And I hadn't spoken to him for a very long time. But he got in touch with me to tell me that he'd kind of reached his wit's end, that this town had been taken over by a militia, by a kind of criminal gang. Basically, in Brazil, a militia was normally comprising groups of off-duty police officers or maybe even firemen, generally people with access, legal access to firearms, who form vigilante neighbourhood watch groups. That's how they start and then they turn into fully-fledged mafias charging everyone for protection and charging, you know, for essentially to, to allow people to live in peace and charging, you know, the supply of gas or cable TV, those kind of things. And he told me that this militia had moved in and that it was an incredibly violent gang which was very bold. They paraded around town, armed men even in their uh, civilian clothes and that they clearly had a very close relationship with the police because they'd often be seen either getting out of police cars or talking with police officers and that a lot of people had disappeared in the town and uh, it was suspected that they'd been killed by this militia group. Other people had been driven out of the town. So it was a story which certainly isn't part of Bloomberg's core coverage but there was one element of it which kind of interested me, all of it interested me, but one element which I thought I could use as a pitch for Bloomberg, and that was this guy Sergio telling me that this militia had started to charge for jobs at Compergy, at the petrochemical <laughs> plant, that it had just started back up, and there were a handful of jobs there, I mean, a little over a 1,000 jobs there. As I say, it was originally meant to employ up to 100,000, but a sort of trickle of jobs on the kind of basic maintenance, and that this militia was charging, basically, people... Uh, for the jobs there. The scheme was that if you wanted a job there, then you had to agree to surrender a certain percentage of your salary uh, to this gang. And so I thought that was a sort of Bloomberg way into the story. And so uh, essentially over the course of several months, I just exchanged a lot of WhatsApp messages with Sergio and then with other guys. He was part of a kind of group of concerned citizens who would send me, I mean, horrific stuff of basically graphic images of sort of dead bodies of residents who've been killed and testimony from people who you know, were talking about just the, the kind of brazen attitude of this militia and how they acted completely without fear of any kind of repercussion from the authorities and how their attempts to raise police 
police interest in this matter had fallen completely on deaf ears and that's why they were turning to the media in a somewhat desperate last attempt to figure things out and so I tried to sort of piece together certain things there was a lot of confusing information a lot of these people weren't necessarily particularly literate so I got these pretty confusing text messages and the, the way the network worked was also pretty unclear exactly who was in charge how exactly they were extorting people it took a while for that to become clear to me there was essentially the wife of someone who had been jailed for a quadruple homicide who was working at the employment office who was the woman apparently commanding the scheme to charge for jobs and was then passing on the money to her husband in jail and there was a bit of detective work that involved me just scouring linkedin and facebook and trying to identify these people and figuring out their relationship there was political connections as well at the mayor's office the mayor's office which also controls the employment office and when i felt that i had a rough idea in mind and i felt that this testimony appeared pretty compelling i went there and it was an interesting experience just because i'd been there three years previously it was a pretty depressing sight then i guess it was even more depressing now people would not speak openly about this stuff the day before i went to itaboree i spoke to some people who sergio had put me in contact with they came to the office and i spoke to this couple who you know they've been charged a security tax on top of their rent this couple had a house and had a little bar and at some point they were unable to pay for their security tax and so this guy was beaten up in front of his kids and then sent packing out of his house just the clothes on his back and told that if he came back he would be killed and so i had some compelling testimony and then a colleague of mine who works in rio who had good contacts with the organized crime unit of the federal police also got some very interesting court documents related to some of the cases they were trying to bring against alleged ringleaders in itaboree in very kind of graphic testimony of the kind of violence that they used and what their main income streams were one of which was contraband cigarettes actually so one of the ways that you can identify the presence of a militia in a rio neighborhood is if they have cigarettes labeled gift gift cigarettes actually come from paraguay and they're illegally smuggled over the border and they tend to be kind of signature or a symbol of militia dominance we spent some time in itaboy it was um somewhere where i didn't feel completely comfortable but at the same time i wouldn't want to exaggerate the danger i think that one of the advantages of being a gringo in brazil is it gives you a degree of immunity which i don't think to be honest brazilian journalists have brazil is clearly a very dangerous place for local journalists who disturb powerful local interests i think that the fact of being a foreigner here i guess allows you sometimes to go to places where it would probably be foolish for a local reporter to go and essentially we put together this story based on you know some kind of on the record testimony a lot of off the record testimony from people whose stories we had to work hard to verify and then from police detective statements and we published this story and soon after this story broke there was a huge police raid on the town and they arrested about 50 people they discovered a clandestine cemetery where there were around 50 bodies people who've been disappeared i mean we you know confirmed some of the anecdotes about disappearances and deaths through looking at some of the police statistics over the previous year i got messages from some of the people who had spoken to in the town who said that the report made a difference that it brought attention to this issue clearly the police were studying this prior to our arrival on the scene and their investigation was well advanced which is why they were able to give us some kind of interesting information i don't know if it helped push this up the police's agenda but it felt like it was a worthwhile and impactful piece of journalism i would say as a kind of postscript to that that i in the last month or so the story was published in april and i think the police raid was in early may and as i say they arrested about 50 people.
people. But I have just heard in the last kind of month or so that basically the militia has started operating in force again in Itaboraí. So although there was a temporary sort of cessation in hostilities, it now appears that things are starting to slide back, just to show how kind of ingrained this issue is in Brazil. And the current political climate is one in which police officers can do no wrong or the forces of law and order can do no wrong. And the government here wants to change the law to ensure that police are not prosecuted for killing people. But in many areas of the country, the police are arguably the greatest threat to residents, albeit in their uniformed guise when they're on the day job or when they're, in theory, off duty and providing these shady security services, but basically operating as a mafia. Wow, sounds like a great story. And definitely uh, that's where being in Brazil for a long time pays off. And the fact that you'd reported about this place and you had all that knowledge, I'm sure any number of times sources get in touch with me about some bullshit or other, but never has it paid off big like that, you know? Okay, so the next part is the lightning round where I'm going to ask you a series of faster questions. Do you feel ready? Yeah, okay. Well, uh, now, now I feel on edge, but yeah, let's go for it. The first one, walk me through how you start your morning. Uh, I'm normally woken at around about 6 a.m. by either my baby or my five-year-old boy, uh, who often kind of walks in. He doesn't say this anymore, but he used to come up and say, supper time. Um, <laughs> he doesn't say that anymore. He normally wants to know, is it Saturday? Because he knows that he's allowed to watch TV on a Saturday. He's not allowed to watch it on uh, any other day. So uh, that's normally how I start the day. My a boiled egg for me and the older boy and it's normally a kind of gentle start of the morning there are times when i go to the gym bright and early before things get crazy so sometimes i go as early as six o'clock though that's pretty rare but i normally if i don't go early then i don't go at all so yeah that's how i start my day i don't have to be in the office until 11 o'clock these days so i have oh, a little bit of, which is quite quite civilized but do you normally start looking at the news right away or? you know normally one of the first things i look at will be twitter so just see everything big has happened on twitter then i'll look at my work emails and then if i've got a bit of time after that i might scroll through the main brazilian papers to see if there's anything big that i might want to tweet about or that i might want to think about for doing a story normally turn on the radio i listen to cbn which isn't very good but somehow it's, reporter cbn yeah which uh, yeah somehow it's got, it's got stuck on our dial and i haven't found a way of changing it my yeah amanda quite likes it but i tend to find it a bit irritating to be honest and then, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day and it can't be Bloomberg? I look at The Guardian and I look at The New York Times every day. I also, to my shame, you can edit this bit out if you want, <laughs> I look at The Sun, which is an English tabloid. I don't know why. It's just, if it's something to do with homesickness or whatever because it doesn't really require any kind of mental energy uh -huh. and i'm just vaguely intrigued always about either their take on whatever political disaster is happening in the uk or to a certain extent it's to do with matando saudades you know that's that feeling of homesickness yeah so you know it's got the latest celebrity who's been kicked out of the it's not big brother anymore whatever it is Geordie <laughs> Shaw whatever if I know these people then I feel ah okay I'm not completely cut off from the UK yeah. if I don't know them then I think oh god that's I'm fair lost my roots that's fair is there any particular subject matter you read into or you're particularly into in your free time not related to work I do read a lot of stuff related to Brexit you know, which isn't related to my work at all now, but which I feel as a sort of concerned British citizen I should have a grip on. There are particular kind of columnists who I like. There are just certain writers who I will look for. I mean, my favourite columnist to read, this is for fun, is Marina Hyde, who writes for The Guardian, and she is just very, very, very funny. 
and uh, is brilliant on Brexit and on kind of UK celebrity culture. In The Guardian, was like Jonathan Friedland. He's, I mean, a kind of serious thinker, but I think he always writes in a very clear, engaging way. At the opposite end of the spectrum, I do enjoy reading uh, Rod Liddell, who writes for The Spectator. You know, he's pretty far right. He's very, I mean, some of his stuff is quite hard to stomach, but it's always kind of engagingly written. And I mean, part of it is the fact that he is almost beyond the pale. I don't know if it gives me some kind of sort of illicit thrill or something. I think he's certainly provocative in an interesting way. I'm not sure if any of those will be kind of comprehensible to a US audience. What is the best journalistic piece that you've consumed lately? I think one of the best pieces that I've read recently is by William Langerschweisch. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He, he's a former airline pilot who's written a bit about basically airline disasters. And he wrote a fantastic piece for The Atlantic about the disappearance of the Malaysian flight. Again, I can't remember the MH370, number. The 370 the one that was MH370, ever found? yeah, yeah. He wrote a very, very comprehensive and compelling piece about that. You know, doing a lot, a lot of detective work in which he kind of theorizes that basically it was a essentially a kind of suicide by the pilot, which I, I believe elsewhere has been kind of dismissed as uh, idle conjecture which pins the blame on a man who's not able to defend himself. I found the evidence quite compelling in the way that he drew on such a sort of vast web of resources from beachcombers in Zanzibar who found parts of the fuselage to US-based simulators of flight pattern to interviews with the pilot's drinking buddies. It's a very long form and very comprehensive piece of journalism which includes a lot of technical detail but which never gets boring and never loses the human angle and is also beautifully written. Do you remember what it was called? I'll get a link from I, 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 I mean, so he's called William Langerweish uh, L-A-N-G-E-I-S Is Twitter important to you? It is, yes. Yeah, I'm about to reach 10,000 followers. It's By the time I post this, if you haven't <laughs> reached it, something has gone, gone wrong. horribly wrong. It's important to me because I like broadcasting my news there. I like, I, you know, I feel that it's a way of, of getting engagement. But I, I do think that Twitter is a fantastic journalistic resource. As a kind of first alert system, I think it's really unbeatable. And I've been using it for over 10 years now. I'm slightly addicted to it. Maybe I need to free myself of it. I often feel like I'm one of the first people in my office to know when something important is happening because I always keep an eye on Twitter. As I say, maybe my mental health would be better without it, but I think I'd be a poorer journalist. So the next questions are a series of yes or no questions. Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Yes. Care to expand? I, I understand that people have an issue with activist journalism. I strongly disagree. He said at a recent testimony hearing that it was a lie that kind of journalists could be objective. There was always some bias there. I mean, obviously, we're all human and we fail, but I think still the strive for objectivity is a good thing. I think that his background as a lawyer means that he's more concerned with winning arguments than he is necessarily in getting to the truth. But I think he's done some very, very important journalistic work. Um, and while I kind of disagree with a lot of his politics and I disagree with his insistence on completely blurring the line between activism and journalism, I think the world would be a poorer place without his journalistic efforts. Vice media, yes or no? Mm, uh, no. <laughs> I've written for Vice, so maybe I shouldn't oh, say that. But I have written for Vice, yeah. I've heard horror stories. Yeah, I mean, I've only done, a, uh, I mean, maybe two or three articles, and it wasn't too painful, and I got paid more or less on time, I think. There was that piece, I mean, obviously, you know, they were the first people to do that, that uh, in Charlotte, you know, that, that, that documentary they did about yeah. the, uh, was pretty, pretty 
pretty impressive. But the style of it, you know, the kind of, I don't know, I took acid and ate my own poo or whatever. You know, <laughs> there's only so much you can take. Very, very small doses, I suspect. So is that a yes or no? Oh, God. No, I'm going to give it a begrudging yes because, you know, the more the merrier in the media ecosystem, I, I tend to feel. WikiLeaks, yes or no? Yes. I mean, uh, you know, uh, heavily caveated, yes. I, uh, I mean, again, I think Julian Assange is a deeply problematic person. I think WikiLeaks has been highly irresponsible in a lot of the publication of this stuff. But I guess trying to err on the side of stuff which powerful people want suppressed getting into the public domain, I mean, ultimately, I'm in favour of that. And I think probably you're going to possibly do some damage along the way. But I think the kind of ultimate goal of ensuring that powerful actors, individuals or states are somehow held accountable for their actions, I think is a, is a good thing. The Wire season five, yes or no? <laughs> no. If you've seen it. No, no. I love The Wire, but yeah, season five is, is poor. <laughs> it's very poor. I, you know, and deeply disappointing, given that I'm a journalist, given David Simon was a journalist as well. It just felt, I mean, I, I, I think I've suppressed the memory of it now. Um, <laughs> I mean, because also, I, I mean, my personal favorite is season four. I mean, I just think... You know, I agree, totally. And so it's a hell of a come down. <laughs> yeah, I actually started with season four because my cousin was watching it and he's like, ah, oh, we'll just watch it and I'll explain to you the back story mm. and we watched like seven episodes in the first night we stayed up to like five in the morning or something ridiculous but anyway the the most like gut-wrenching scene of that is when he leaves the kid in the foster home and he's like are you gonna help me sergeant carter are you gonna help me and he just kind of like walks out yeah. i've never seen child acting like that on anything else Deplatforming, yes or no I mean, generally I'm against it, but I think there are some legitimate exceptions to total free speech. I mean, when I was at university, there was a big thing about David Irving, who was a Holocaust denier, oh, basically okay. a historian. He'd written quite a lot of books sort of challenging official narrative of the Holocaust. And deplatforming is different from burning someone's books. I don't feel that everyone is necessarily has a sort of God-given right to a platform. You know, you're always going to be making a choice with a certain number of speakers. Deplatforming, generally I'm against, but I wouldn't make up hard and fast rules of it because I think there are some very legitimate exceptions to that. Sure. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? That's George Orwell. Can we call him a journalist? I mean, he was kind of bigger than that. I mean, I, you know, sure. I think he's... You know. cite, cite anything journalistic he did and I'll allow it. So there's a story he wrote, which is based on his experience as a police officer, colonial police officer in Burma. And it's to do with the hanging of a man. But he describes the way this guy walks to the scaffold and how he skirts around a puddle rather than walk through it. So he takes care not to wet his shoes or his trousers. And he kind of speculates on this. Why is a man who's literally just about to die why does he care whether his trousers get a little wet yeah and uh it, he kind of uses this as a basis for an argument against capital punishment but it's just that beautifully observed detail which i think is an example of fantastic journalism and that that kind of eye for real material detail is something which i aspire to when i'm reporting anything what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self i wish that i had moved to Latin America earlier. To a certain extent, I'm fulfilling my youthful ambitions slightly too late and in a slightly sort of cack-handed way. And I think I would have told my younger self, just buy that plane ticket and go to where you want to go. Don't worry about the debts. 
you'll figure it out. Makes sense. What is one thing most people don't know about you? I've got a peanut allergy. Most people know that. <laughs> All right. Well, most people don't know that I have this ulcerative colitis, which is this very unpleasant <laughs> bowel condition, which makes life quite unpleasant when it's in crisis and has unfortunately impacted my life to quite an extent, which has limited how much reporting I can do and why I do more editing now than reporting because mm. I just don't have quite as much uh, mobility as I would like. Had it not been for this particular ailment, I like to think that I'd be still out in the field doing a bit more reporting. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists? I mean, I thought the film Spotlight was excellent. I really enjoyed that. I wouldn't necessarily go and see a film or read a book about the craft of journalism. I feel like it's like a, a busman's holiday. Do you have that expression in America? But no, about, I, we don't. So I have no idea what a, that means. <laughs> a busman's holiday means basically you do something for your holiday which you do in your working life. Oh, uh, okay. So I guess a busman's so they'd be going on a bus. <laughs> so I don't necessarily want to watch films about journalists when I'm in my downtime. And then the final question, qualifications aside, if you mm. couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Something that paid me lots of money. Uh, <laughs> no, what would I do? I suppose that qualification, no object. I would like to write more. You know, I'd like to, maybe that doesn't count because it's too close to journalism. But I mean, if I had the time and the resources, then I would like to dedicate my time to writing. I think nonfiction, so as in sort of journalistic books. <laughs> That's not really a very good attempt, is it, <laughs> really? rather than journalists. Uh, no, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, a, a stand-up comedian. Okay. I tried a bit after university. When I lived in London, I did a course in stand-up. And I did a handful of shows or so. That was when I was working for the BBC and you had to do these shows, you know, they're always in pubs, uh, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night and then I was working often at 6am the next day, so then you had to get back across London and go to bed and I also... (laughs) You know, couldn't, couldn't necessarily see a future in it. I get that. I mean, listen to so many hours of Mark Barron. I've watched a lot of stand-up comedy. Seems like a pretty awesome job. <laughs> okay, well, is there anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, um, think, I think you got the best out of me. Okay, well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast again. A lot of fun. Cheers. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Bruce Douglas of Bloomberg in Brazil. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave it a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. It helps get the podcast more attention Apple and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, November 3rd. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. into my foot <laughs> um well that makes sense i mean our this place was built in 1960 i would be surprised if the floor <laughs> has been repaired at all our landlord is absentee and kind of an asshole so um yeah.